The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you to our uh, our training session here uh, involving our street design manual that has been, I guess, in process and worked on for the, not the last last year or maybe nine or 10 months. It's been been a long time coming and we're really excited to uh, kind of finish this, put it together and actually begin putting it into use um, as, as you'll see today. And that's, that's really kind of the, the point of today's exercise and training is to kind of not only show the, I guess the, the features and benefits of the manual uh, abstractly, but also put it to work as well and, and work through a, a real example of how we intend this design manual to be applicable to our uh, our streets here in Kalamazoo. And uh, like I said, it's it's been great to finally wrap this up and, and do some, some really good work here uh, with Smith Group. So we have kind of a layout of of what these next couple hours are going to entail. Um, obviously, beginning with an uh, introduction, it's a good place to start. Uh, go through an overview of the manual in general. Uh, it, it's very uh, thorough. There, there are a lot of chapters and, and sections to it. So uh, I think that's helpful to kind of show where everything is and what all is actually included in the manual. Um, <clears throat> And then from there, go into the street typologies um, and, and that decision-making process of, of how a street falls or where it falls in that typology um, in reference to the manual. Um, our modal hierarchy, how do we prioritize? Uh, what street elements are gonna be um, involved or considered in a, in a project? Um, and, and where those kind of, I guess, rank more or less as we uh, consider all of the elements in the right-of-way space, um, and as well as provide a checklist for um, our design projects to make sure that we're hitting uh, every single topic, or at least considering or thinking about um, every, every element when these projects are getting put together. Uh, and then from there, uh, talk about key design elements uh, to consider or, um, I guess how we and how we kind of visualize each element to be designed based on the street typology, and then we're going to work through a, an actual exercise in the small group breakout rooms uh, will be our final exercise for the day. And we will begin with introductions. Uh, I guess first up, reading from the top, would be Christina Anderson. Hi, um, I think everybody knows who I am. Christina Anderson, uh, city planner for Kalamazoo. I'm Anthony Led uh, in the public services department. I'm Dennis Randolph and I am the traffic engineer for the city. Hello everyone. Uh, my name is Janet Atarian and I'm a principal at Smith Group and delighted to be here with you today. Great. Um, thanks, everyone. I'm Oliver Kiley, uh, landscape architect and principal at Smith Group. So Janet and I both worked with 
um, the city on putting together the design manual. Um, just since we have a pretty big group today, we're gonna hold off um, on having people introduce themselves until we switch into the small group activities and we can kind of kick those off and people can introduce themselves uh, to their group mates when we get down to that section. Um, just a note too, we have a few places in the presentation where we'll pause and kind of ask questions, but if people have questions as we go throughout this, you know, feel free to kind of raise your hand in Zoom and um, we can take a pause and help answer clarifying questions as we go. This is meant to be conversational and informative and we don't want people feeling like they're confused or uh, not able to answer a question. So please feel free to raise your hand during that time. Okay. I think this is where I start off, Oliver. And uh, yep. hello, everybody. I didn't say hello before, but I, I wanted to just give a, a short lead in to what we're going to be doing today and, and what this manual means. And the day before yesterday, I got an email that uh, the Secretary of Transportation, Department of Transportation, had uh, put out a new program. It's a safety program. It's the next step, uh, you know, the, the zero uh, fatal program that's been around a few years has kind of had mixed success. It, it, and uh, as a traffic person, a long time traffic person, I never really bought into what they were doing with this, that program because it didn't change the things I thought were important to make streets safe and livable. And that's the words we're, we're running with nowadays, livability, sustainability, safety. Anyway, Secretary Buttigieg, I hope I got there, I messed it up, but the, the secretary put out a new program and it's a fundamental change in how we're going to be looking at safety from now on in an attempt to get to the point where we can have zero fatalities on our roads. I think that's important because you've all heard about all the money that's come out with the new bills that Congress has passed. And I assume there'll be some more money too over the next couple of years as Congress uh, works things out among themselves. But those programs are gonna be tied to the secretary's direction regarding safety. And the interesting point, and I think what applies here and what I wanted to tell you about was that it's more than just uh, the physical things that we've done in the past, how wide a road is, that's, you know, and, and capacity and speed. There's going to be more of an emphasis on people and how people interrelate with streets and how the community relates to the transportation system. And that's what this design manual really helps us to do. It helps to look past the old Ashto Green Book. And I love the Ashto Green Book and before it, the purple book and the blue book, I, it's every color in the rainbow. But making streets safe and making them livable for tomorrow is a lot different than taking uh, a table from the Ashto book and applying it to a particular situation. And what the design manual is going to do 
it's going to help guide us along a path as we start into our design for streets in the city. And I guess tune us up, make us understand first the people part of what's going on. And that's why you're hearing terms like topology and, and, and something like that, you know, what is that? Uh, but the intent is to really focus on how we are going to look differently when we're designing. I'm really happy about that. I've, I've been designing roads a long time and this is a change. And what the secretary said the other day is a big change. It's a change I've been waiting for for, for years. And we've got a chance here in the city to be real leaders in this, this change, especially with the big projects that, that Anthony's guiding along for us, the, the two-wing project, if nothing else, is a big deal. And it'll be a project where we can apply the design manual and have something better and different in the end. And hopefully it'll also work real well for carrying traffic. I don't forget about that. I'm a traffic engineer, but it'll help us to make and right size our streets, which is really important. And what we all have to remember is it does change some of those things we've talked about in the past, level of service, you know, designs, that, that was always a, the holy grail of, of traffic engineering and highway engineering, you know, level of service, level of service. Yeah, level of service is there, but we don't necessarily strive for an A or B or even a C anymore because those levels of service don't necessarily serve the community and don't necessarily make safe streets. You know, we killed 38,000 people on our nation's highways last year. That's a lot of folks to die and to lose. And the vast majority of those people die in crashes that are speed related. Okay, so emphasizing speed and design, in other words, to make the speed the highest as possible, is not a way to make streets as safe as possible. So the manual is going to help us do that. And uh, it's different. And I think that's the biggest thing to overcome that is different. Can I change slides or do can you do that, Oliver? I got it. Okay. I think it's jumping over to Christina for, for a moment. Yeah. Thanks, Dennis. Mm-hmm. Hi, everybody. This is Christina again. I just want to kind of ground our work very quickly, right? Everything that we do at the city is in alignment with our strategic vision and our 2025 master plan, and this work is no different. Um, if you've had a chance to flip through the document, you've seen um, kind of that grounding at the beginning, talking about uh, being rooted in our connected city and complete neighborhoods goal. Um, this document really took what we started in the master plan, which was loosely aligning street types uh, very generally and at a high level, and really refined that to think um, a, little more, um, a little more thoughtfully or carefully about that marriage between um, streets and land use. And so that's been refined and we have a new set of street types 
um, and typologies in the city um, that took the work from the master plan uh, and, and, and did it better, uh, made it more detailed. Um, this work also is in alignment with our complete streets policy, which we approved about two years ago, and have frankly been struggling on how to implement, right? I mean, we, Dennis, Anthony, George, Tom, everyone who works on traffic, Jesse, you know, on individual projects, we always keep complete streets uh, and the goals in mind, but we haven't until this point figured out how we make it something that is automatic every day, every project, and we're really thinking about all of our streets in this way. And so between this document, our complete streets advisory committee, which is made up of citizens, and kind of an internal committee that we're going to um, restart, you know, these things are going to be thought about um, in a timely manner, right? So this document also, if you've had a chance to look at it, talks about process, right? When do we think about these things? Um, and, you know, lately it's been oh crap, this is coming up next year. Oh, this neighborhood plan said this, but it was way too late to include anything, right? Because budgets were done, designs were done. And so this is meant to be um, helping us set ourselves up for success and very thoughtful planning. So our five-year capital improvements plan and what happens in the years before the capital improvements plan as we're thinking about what goes in and what needs to be included. Um, so this is all in alignment with everything else that we've done. And again, just uh, um, one more implementation activity from our 2025 master plan uh, that was done um, with both public services and planning kind of moving together um, to complete this step. Thanks, Auburn. Next slide. I wanted to emphasize, and, and again, that we're going to be looking at our designs differently, but that doesn't mean that there's no support for what we're doing. And especially with the secretary's new announcement and his programs, his emphasis on, on looking at things differently. We've got the support. So, you know, often we, we worry, you know, we're going to try something different. We're going to get sued. We're going to end up in court. Well, we are doing things that are contrary to good engineering practice, you know, and we're going to be using guidance from the Federal Highway Administration and and MDOT, all the dots are having to buy into this and whether they like it or not, I, I guess I'll add that because the new money that's coming is gonna require that they buy into this. And so again, it, it, a lot of people have to look at things differently, but there's good support. ASHTO, the, the organization that helps guide a lot of designs in the country has many committees set up and uh, I sit on a couple of those committees that that are making the changes necessary to follow the processes and the, the thoughts that are in our design manual. NACTO, which is the organization that cities in particular use to uh, guide their designs has been pushing these ideas, frankly, for a number of years, and they finally have the legislative power and authority behind them, their ideas, which is really great because cities are, are, are an important part of, of how things get designed and they're gonna be playing even more and more important part in the future. So you're gonna see adjustments in, in the guidance we receive. And, and one of the things I wanted to mention, I, I don't know if, it, Oliver had mentioned it, but you know, we're recording the session, but we're going to be showing the session as consultants come online to 
do designs for us, they're going to be seeing the same information because we want them to know what our direction is. And, and as city folks, right, we, we have to make sure that they also buy into this program. Again, it is different. And, and I know how hard it is to do different things in, in engineering, but it really is a positive step and it certainly is going to help us as a community. So I have to see who's next here, Oliver. You have one more, Dennis. Yeah, I, I, I'm flicking. I got three screens going here, and it's an overload yep. for an old guy. But uh, you're doing great. I, again, I just wanted to mention, as as a, an instructor, and if you don't know, I, I spend a lot of time in instructing in engineering field. That uh, manuals like this are really nice, and change like this is great. The tough part is making everybody comfortable. So what we're working on I, I know anthony and george and tom in particular just working on a lot of processes for our designs that help so we don't forget things so that we're covered so that we're documented because we want to document what we're doing not in a negative sense but i i, I mentioned the other day what we're starting embarking on here in kalamazoo especially with the getting the two-way project going but also all the other jobs is we're making a difference and we can show other communities how to do this, which I think is a really great thing to do. So I, I'm looking forward to it again, we're, we're, we're aligning streets and transportation to the community. And that hasn't always been done. I'll testify, I work for four cities and three counties. And we didn't always line things up with what the community wanted when we were building roads. And that is a change that's long overdue. And that's what we're going to be doing here. So hopefully you'll, you'll enjoy this because I look at it as it's a challenge, but also it's something different. It, it, it's something to look forward to. So next slide. Yeah, and uh, just to build on what Dennis is saying and, and Christina as well, I mean, this this manual is really, you know, uh, meant to tie our our city values, um, what what we value as a city, what our goals are collectively, uh, tie that in with a, you know, a design manual, which is which is really cool. And I think that's what makes it unique and specific to Kalamazoo, uh, different than some of those other national guides. Um, one, it's it's tailored to what we want to see in the city, but um, I, I guess kind of the, the guiding process in that is, is built on these values and goals um, that were also, I mean, they're, they're espoused in, in, in many places throughout the city and, and by elected officials and uh, you know, city staff and public but also laid out uh, specifically in the uh, Imagine Kalamazoo 2025 master plan. So that's, that's kind of, I mean, we, we keep harping on that, but that's, that's really the, you know, you will see that throughout this manual, that reflection of these goals and values. Um, you know, we, and I guess just to kind of briefly speak on, on each of them again, um, 
we have connected city, you know, connecting neighborhoods, um, using the streets to to connect people to get them from you know uh, one place to the other, and and not to separate uh, people and create barriers. Uh, environmentally and responsible and sustainable practices. Um, you will see that a lot in our green infrastructure and some of the decisions that, that we're using to drive um, our, our street projects as far as stormwater, um, our, our tree plantings, our uh, tree you know, features that, that help the trees to thrive um, and, and overall uh, move towards a more sustainable future. Uh, equity and opportunity for all. Uh, I guess this kind of ties in, well, they all tie together, but, but also, um, you know, creating emphasis on multimodal use, um, creating uh, equity for, for all users, um, and not necessarily prioritizing vehicular traffic uh, when, it, when it makes sense. Uh, safe community also Obviously, by by building these streets in a in a way that's more equitable uh, for all users, at the same time, it, it creates a a, a safer, uh, more inviting street for for everyone to use. Complete neighborhoods. Uh, I, I think that does tie back to the connectivity and, and safety element. Um, one thing that I think this guide reflects too is. And as a city, you know, it's, it is not only what's being done in our right-of-way, um, but also realizing that land use is, is, a, is a big part of this and, and that those two elements, the, the street and, and the land use around it, um, can't, be, can't be separated and we want those to work together. Um, you know, our, our goals and values do not stop when we leave the right of way. So trying to uh, you know, use our streets to, to tie into that land use, to make complete neighborhoods, to create these vibrant places uh, you know, off of the right of way, but also within the bounds of, of our streets to where we can create, uh, create that community, create um, you know, a sense of well-being for, for all residents and businesses that are here in the city. Um, and then I guess finally, resilient infrastructure and good governance. You know, this is really at the core of, of everything that we do. Um, I think that, you know, by, by believing in and investing in these values is, is good governance, but also um, for the assets themselves. You know, we're, we're really committed these last couple of years. I, I think we've placed a huge emphasis on our asset management capabilities and long-term planning to create something that's you know, sustainable from a budget sense, but also um, sustainable for these asset conditions to where um, you know, we have something that, that will last for, for generations to come and something that we can build on um, for, for everyone here in the city. Awesome, thanks, thanks Anthony. Um, before we switch to the next section and jump into process, just wanted to pause here, see if there were any overall questions that people had. I saw a hand or two go up and come down. Maybe we got your question covered, but wanted to open that up if anybody had something that they wanted to add or a question on the upfront piece here. Seeing none, 
Uh, I'm going to move on. So I think, Janet, uh, you're going to jump yep. in and kick this section off. Yes. Hello, everyone. Um, so <clears throat> that was a, a great introduction. And, um, you know, I think it really gives you a good feel for where this is coming from, uh, how important it is. Um, so let's dive into, you know, what is it and how is it going to help all of you do what you do um, and, and, and make your jobs hopefully easier. Um, so it, the manual sort of gets broken down into sort of two big sections, if you will. And one is about process. Um, so uh, a little bit about the how. And the other one is a little bit about the specific design guidance. So um, a little bit about the sort of what, if you will. Um, and we want to talk, uh, start talking about um, uh, the, the process a little bit with all of you and really um, walking through how this is going to work because really what the process is, it, it, I, I, we hope we've done a good job of sort of laying it out in a way that it's really user friendly. That is the point is to make it so that it's as easy as possible to use um, and really helps you uh, get to the kinds of solutions that achieve some of those goals that you just heard Christina and Anthony and Dennis talk about. Um, so starting off, um, you know, what is this manual for? What is it supposed to cover? It, it's really meant to cover, you know, all the types of efforts that happen in the public right of way. Complete streets happen when everybody from doing a signal project to a resurfacing to a streetscape to a reconstruction um, is, is looking at their projects through the lens of complete streets. Um, and they're look, understanding how their piece of the pie, whatever they're doing, um, adds up to create that more livable, um, multimodal, uh, safe um, environment for um, you know, as many users as, as we possibly can, can achieve, um, and certainly our most vulnerable users. Next slide. So this sort of outlines the, the, the general process. Um, uh, what is the most important takeaway from this is you start early and it goes all the way through operations, right? Um, complete streets is not a thing that you do at a certain point and you sort of just say, check, done, I've got it. You know, the, the point is uh, like any, any good um, uh, guiding principle, right? It should be informing the projects that you're selecting and how you're prioritizing what goes into the CIP. Um, it should be uh, informing then how you develop the scope of work for that project, how you decide how much funding should go into that project. Uh, obviously, it should then be informing the design and how you actually design it and the components and how that goes together and the, the street cross section and all that kind of stuff. Uh, then it needs to obviously um, get built right, right? Um, is it, is it uh, following the design intent? Uh, you know, is that green infrastructure really going to function? Is the ADA goals really achieved? You know, whatever it might be. Um, and then of course that, that follows even into operations in, and how is it being maintained? Are you able to plow the bike lanes? Are you able to, you know, um, keep the trees alive and thriving, uh, you know, the list sort of goes on, right? So, and of course, it's not just about projects that the public sector does, it is also very much for the private sector. So um, when you're working with developers uh, or a developer comes in and they're going to be doing work in the public way, 
um, you know, want, we want them to be looking through the eyes of this project process just as much and following this. Um, and as Dennis mentioned, it's, it's, you know, who's the audience? It's consultants, it's the public, it's uh, uh, folks who work um, for the city, it's developers, it's a range of folks. Next. So um, what are the sort of key steps in this process? We are gonna spend really the rest of this presentation sort of walking you through this. Um, and as we've mentioned, we're gonna have a detailed exercise at the end where you are actually gonna get to walk yourself through this and hopefully really get familiarity with how it works. Um, you've heard us talk about the typologies. We're gonna, we're gonna explain that in a lot more detail, but essentially we've taken the, the um, streets of Kalamazoo and we've mapped them and we've assigned them typologies. So you don't have to figure out that typology, you just have to be able to figure out how to sort of uh, read the map um, and figure that out. There's some specialty uh, aspects to that that we'll go into. The other thing which you've sort of heard us talk about is modal hierarchy. Um, what modal hierarchy essentially is, if you're not familiar with it, is um, as you go through the decision-making process, right, and there's always trade-offs, um, there's never enough public right-of-way to do everything we want, and quite frankly, we don't really necessarily just want to build wider and wider streets so we can fit, you know, everything in maybe in the ideal level of service quality, right? Um, and so there are trade-offs. Um, there are different types of streets, right? There are different types of land uses. So how do you determine um, which modes you're going to prioritize? And once you have that, that's going to help you make decisions later on about uh, cross sections, about design elements, and about all of those types of things. Then there's the value-based checklist. Now, <clears throat> the value-based checklist is important for a number of reasons. Um, we did not decide in this to dictate a modal hierarchy. Sometimes that's done, right? It's just like, you know, it's gonna be pedestrians first, it's gonna be cyclists, it's gonna be transit, whatever it might be. We wanted to um, uh, give the flexibility of people looking at the existing conditions, the planned conditions, uh, the specific wants and needs of the community and, and determining that modal hierarchy. But how do you do that? Well, the value-based checklist is aligned to those values that go back to the imagined Kalamazoo and those goals that um, uh, Anthony just went over that you saw. And underneath all of those, there are a set of questions for each phase in the process. And those questions help you get at the modal hierarchy. And I will be showing you that in a little bit, um, but they also just help you gather the data and think through the things that you want to think through that help you figure out how to design it, um, what, what are going to be your priorities, uh, what are the um, different facts uh, or existing plans that should be influencing how the road gets designed. All that kind of good stuff is contained in that value-based checklist. It's, I think, very uh, nicely organized but, and the questions are, are there for your use. And not every question is gonna be appropriate for every project, but hopefully if you go through that, it's gonna make sure you don't forget some, to think about something or you know, bring in um, uh, a piece of information that's going to really help drive the right solutions forward as you, as you move through it. Um, then there's the design element checklist. That's gonna help you um, figure out, you know, specifically 
with you've you've got this typology and you've got this mode hierarchy, you know, what uh, what pieces should be going into the project. And then of course the detailed design element guide, which is then going to give you the technical information you need to say, great, I've decided I need a protective bike lane. How do I design that protective bike lane, right? What are the standards? Um, what's the best practice? Where can I find more information? That's going to all be in the detailed design guidelines. So that's really the, the key steps in the process. And they're all contained in this manual. Um, and hopefully they will uh, be pretty self-evident once you kind of get a basic understanding for it and you can and you can walk yourself through on all sorts of different types of projects. Great. Thanks, Janet. Um, so I'm just going to talk through the typology piece at a high level. Um, so, you know, for those who have been in the transportation planning and traffic engineering world for a long time, um, there's the whole uh, kind of functional classification of roads that has been used for a long, long time as a basis for design and planning. Uh, you know, collectors, arterials, major arterials, minor collectors, all of those things. Um, sometimes those get simplified down to, you know, primary streets versus more local streets. And that's always been a very sort of auto-centric, vehicle-centric way of looking at road classification. And the idea of street typologies is that they take, you know, what are the functional needs of the roads? And that's not just vehicles, but it's really all users of the street corridor, whether they're walking, whether they're on transit, whether they're riding a bike or driving a vehicle, those functional needs of the road. And then also looking at the adjacent land use context that's along the roadway corridor. Is it going through a residential area? Is it going through a heavy shopping area? Is it more suburban? or more urban in nature. And so the typologies exist at the intersection between those two, between the functional needs of the road and that land use context and the uh, recommendations and the strategies and the intent of that typology is to respond to both of those two conditions to be sensitive to that land use. You probably heard the uh, term for you know context sensitive design, being sensitive to that land use, making sure that um, the adjacent landowners are treated as a user of the roadway too, and that their experience and their environment is a critical part of uh, how the roadway really serves the, serves the community in addition to those transportation functions. Um, and as Christina had mentioned earlier, the 2025 master plan had laid out an initial set of street typologies um, to be considered. We took those as a group and kind of pushed and pulled on them, added a couple here and there, and did a very um, exhaustive dive through the whole city to assign those street typologies out. So you can see those nine uh, different typologies here. So urban center streets are really your major kind of downtown streets um, like Michigan Ave. Um, other downtown streets, event and festival streets. Um, so like Kalamazoo Mall, uh, where you might have more of a curbless design or something that's designed more uh, to be used as an event space at times. Um, and these two, the mixed uh, neighborhood mixed use and commercial mixed use, those really align with areas in the master plan that were called out for some of the neighborhood or commercial nodes for potential uh, development and um, uh, additional activity. So a uh, street that complements that in more of a traditional neighborhood context versus more of a suburban context. There's also, of course, roads that are uh, going through a more suburban-oriented uh, environment themselves. So that's the city connector streets. 
And then really looking at three, acknowledging that there's many different levels of neighborhood level local streets that exist in the city. And some of those may be the smallest, most local roads, um, but others are ones where, you know, they're just a little bit bigger and, you know, maybe they don't have traffic signals at every stop, but there's a lot of cut through traffic happening on those streets and in those neighborhoods just because of the way they're oriented in the grid and the connections that they make. And so are there things we can be thinking about to design those streets differently so that even if they are picking up some of that, you know, through traffic that they're again sensitive to the uh, residential context and the neighborhood context that they're going through. So that's kind of how the street typologies are organized. And then you'll see um, in the exercise themselves, I'll, I'll, when we get to that section later on, I'll point out um, where you can see the full descriptions for all of the typologies. But um, this is just a snippet out of the plan for the main street one. And you can see that the typologies provide, you know, a generic cross section looking at typically what, you know, the right of way widths for that type of roadway corridor is often. It provides a list of some of the typical features that are usually found in that typology. And I should mention that while the typologies are often looking kind of backwards, if you will, towards traffic volumes and the kind of functional role that the road has played, they're future looking and kind of prescriptive in terms of what they aspire to be. So I think that's an important definition. This isn't, a, these typical features aren't about mapping what is, it's about mapping what it could be moving towards in the future. Um, so as I mentioned, they relate to the network function of the road, the land use context. They do provide um, a set of kind of starting point priorities for different types of users that people can use as a starting point to have that um, uh, modal hierarchy discussion and then the typical kinds of features and design considerations for different users is incorporated within those typology descriptions. Okay. Janet, I think back to you for a moment. Yes, get my mic off. So um, as we talked about sort of um, the this issue of the modal hierarchy, right? And um, uh, how do we really go about establishing it? Um, it, it is really important, uh, as I said before, in terms of navigating those trade-off decisions, right? So if you've got so much right away and you have to figure out, you know, is it really important for us to get a bike lane out on this uh, street or not? Or should we maybe be widening the sidewalks? Or uh, is it important that uh, we really uh, accommodate trucks? Uh, on the street uh, or transit, right? Um, and 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 make sure that 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 that's really got a, a high level of accommodation, right? Um, there's always these series of trade-offs, right? Um, one thing though that you really want to always keep in mind with your modal hierarchy is it's not just about who's using the road; it is also about your most vulnerable users. Um, and so you tend to often on your modal hierarchy have either pedestrians or bicyclists up near the top because they are always your most vulnerable users. Even if you know it's going to be a road that's going to have a lot of vehicle and, and truck users, um, unless it's pretty exclusive, um, you also really wanna keep in mind uh, vulnerability. Again, that doesn't mean that you're not making a lot of decisions to accommodate those other users um, and make sure that uh, they can 
can move uh, freely through the corridor. Uh, but it does mean that you're also really going to make sure that your most vulnerable users can be safe um, and can be accommodated and that that never has to be forgotten. And so um, again, we've created the flexibility. We're not dictating which and, and where, and, and it gives you um, the, the flexibility to look at those different unique conditions and decide. Uh, but often you're going to have pedestrians up right at the top of that. And you can see kind of here, this is that example that Oliver was mentioning that comes out of a, a typology, right? So, um, and it's, it's sort of saying, hey, this is maybe the default for this type of typology. You can see pedestrians are there at the top. You've got, uh, in this case, it's bicyclist transit, you know, but again, that's going to be very dependent. Do you have transit? Is it part of the bicycle uh, plan? And those are going to be those questions that you're going to find in the value-based questions. It's going to ask you to look for those types of things, right? And that's going to help you say, okay, this is maybe the default where I start, but um, uh, yeah, this street is on the, on a, on the bicycle plan. We The intention is to, to make this one of our, our bicycle routes. Definitely want to put bicycle out there. If it's, if it's not, if that's not really the intention, but it's a major transit route, maybe bicyclists come, you know, drop down to, you know, transit drops, drop, uh, goes up, right? So these are the different kinds of um, uh, trade-offs that you want to look at. And you can see some of the categories there um, that we're looking at. Uh, and, you know, it is, it is, this is also a real opportunity when you're doing the typologies to, to bring in those other planning efforts, which quite frankly will probably be updated and change over time, you know, so, you, you know, looking at the latest, but, um, you know, if, if there's a, a pedestrian plan, if there's stuff going on around, um, uh, Placemaking and activation work. Is there uh, the bicycle plan? What's what is the what does the transit agency have in mind? What are their most important routes? What are they trying to improve? Uh, where do they have routes that um, you know speed is uh, matters and and their buses are getting caught up? Um, you know where do you see obviously um, uh, traffic constraints and issues? So all of those other things are coming in. Um, and you're getting a chance to bring those to the table and help them understand your modal hierarchy, keeping in mind, though, that you've got that typology and that typology is tied to your context and your land use, right? And so you want to bring those things um, together when you're establishing your modal hierarchy. And then when you've got that, once you've got that typology and you've got that modal hierarchy, um, that's going to allow uh, you to make a whole series of other decisions uh, that are more design-based and, and specific around that cross-section um, and around those specific components. So um, what you see here is uh, a little bit about that value-based checklist that I've been talking about. And basically this chart just lets you know, hey, um, the value-based checklist is there and your friend in every phase of the process. Um, and it's, it, it's, there are questions in those checklists against all of those major goals that we outlined, right? And so this is really, the value-based checklist is your friend. <laughs> it's that list you wanna keep going back to every step of the way and say, hey, did I think of this? 
So this is just an example, and you'll see a lot more of this um, when we jump in and, and do our exercises. Um, but right, so goal, connected city, uh, three driving points right there, strong connections between a diverse range of people and places and, and so on. And then what you're seeing here is just what we call the, the first phase questions. So, because first the first phase is when you want to determine that modal hierarchy. And you can also tell uh, the modal hierarchy specific questions because they will be called out with that little orange diamond uh, and they do appear underneath the different values. Uh, but you can see right here, uh, there's those questions. Uh, read those, ask the, uh, and, you know, take a look. How do they apply to your project? What are the answers specific to the project that you're working on? Um, and use these to help you figure out what your modal hierarchy is. And quite frankly, uh, this is going to ensure that the street design isn't siloed, right? That you're actually um, thinking about what are some of the larger and other efforts that are going on at the city scale, at the regional scale, um, those different plans that are out there and that the, the street design is being tied to that more um, holistic set of, of influences that are out there. Uh, so that's, that is how this all sort of comes together to help you get that modal hierarchy uh, and learn more about the project. And kind of as a bridge between these two, um, and you'll see during the exercises Janet mentioned, um, we have the full sort of checklist for all the different phases of work called out. Um, and a lot of those questions in the tech checklist will point towards specific design elements that might need to be considered or incorporated into the design. Um, and that's really where this design element checklist piece comes in. Um, the uh, chapter four of the report or of the design manual includes six different sections that really break down the street right away into different kind of use categories and talks about um, all of the detailed guidance for there. But there's a lot in that section. And so as a way of trying to get down a little bit closer to um, what it is that a particular street type needs to look at, um, the manual includes what we're calling this design element checklist. And this is just the pedestrian box. And so there's a box for each of those different use categories, transit, uh, vehicle and roadway, um, bicycle facilities and so on. And so what this checklist does is it lists all the different elements that are in the design and, uh, manual where there is detailed design guidance. It lists um, all of the nine different typologies for streets. And then the cells in the checklist are color coded based on um, really, is that an element that is absolutely required and you need to look at how it needs to be incorporated into that street design. So that's the kind of spruce green boxes. Um, the more uh, yellow green boxes are things that are recommended. So this is something that, you know, this element you should consider if there's an opportunity to work that in, it's recommended um, that it be installed. You should have a pretty good reason for why you're not considering <laughs> installing or incorporating that design element in if it's something that's recommended and there's an opportunity for it. The lighter blue boxes are more uh, optional or situational. Those, those could be things that are really nice to have um, for that particular street corridor it could work really well, but there may be you know, conditions or stipulations on when it applies in that particular area, or it may not 
um, deliver a lot of impact or benefit in, a, in one situation um, as compared to a different situation. So um, for example, I mean, just to pick one out, you know, public seating um, in the downtown environment, you know, on your major streets, on the urban center streets and the event festival streets, you know, where you have a lot of people collecting and congregating and activities and events happening, seating is pretty important to think about in that urban design. As you get into more of the uh, other downtown streets or other commercial corridors, you know, seating is a good thing to have. Is it required? Maybe not, but you should really think hard about where there may be an opportunity to work it in versus when you start to get into more of the suburban land use areas or um, into more of the uh, residential streets, seating's probably not as critical. Of course, there's always the option to be able to incorporate it or to weave it in somewhere, but um, you know, it's not a driving, driving need. And then the orange boxes are things that are limited or restricted. So this is something that is usually either not allowed um, or it's allowed only under certain situations or certain conditions. And if that element wants to be incorporated in on that particular street, it may require some additional discussion uh, with the design team to make sure that there's a strong justification and case for that design element. And then the last section of the report, um, chapter four, as I mentioned, this is really where each of those designed elements gets anywhere from a page or two to three or four pages worth of kind of detailed guidance. So this was just looking at uh, pedestrian refuge islands um, that are you know, often incorporated as part of, or that are incorporated as part of crosswalks. Um, just pulled this one out as an example. And so what the guidance will provide, that, that the guidance for each element is broken into four sections. There's a section at the top that just talks about, you know, what's the intent of this design element, a basic description of it in um, just written form. Um, a section that talks about the use and application. So what are the relevant locations? Are there specific notes related back to the street typology that need to be emphasized about where that design element makes sense to uh, be used or not? This section also um, will frequently talk about related design elements. So are there other design elements in the manual that you should really be cross-referencing and looking at to make sure that they're aligned and that they're not creating an incompatibility or a conflict or conversely, maybe there's a great opportunity to bring two different things together. Um, so there, that related design element section covers that. And then it gets into um, the actual design and operations side of it. And so this is where any of the detailed design guidance comes through, um, looking at um, you know, widths, dimensions, layout, materials. Um, there's sections for uh, related to sustainability or utility considerations. There'll be um, references to um, other established guidance. So as Dennis had mentioned earlier, you know, we're not, we're drawing on a lot of the established national guidance to feed into this. So um, those design references will be listed out. And then the final piece that's actually not showing up on the, on the image here is also related to operations and maintenance. So what are those long-term maintenance considerations? As you're thinking through the design of an element, it's important to be thinking about how it's gonna be maintained. Are there things that should influence the design based on the maintenance needs or uh, maintenance resources related to that particular design element? So that's kind of how chapter four is generally laid out. Um, before we switch on to the next, I'll just pause there. So that was kind of an, a, a 
fairly detailed overview of the whole process. And just to reiterate a couple key points, um, you know, it's really can start all the way back, you know, at the planning phase of identifying projects that might go into the CIP plan and the checklist questions that relate to that phase one planning stage in the process can really be used at the onset to help scope and identify, you know, what is this project? What could it potentially be? It can then move into that phase two set of questions where you really develop more detailed scope and budgets and fee for the project and then on into the design and engineering. So um, just wanted to reiterate that process once more. Pause any quick questions. This is our last chunk of the formal presentation. So no, you can is... always, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Janet. I was just gonna say, please don't hesitate to put questions in the chat too as we go, if you're thinking about them and um, we will definitely look at yep. those and make sure we get those answered too and uh, or, or raise your hand or jump in with some questions. Yeah. So the manual itself includes, I, I don't remember the exact number, it's over 50 or over 60 different design elements that are broken out and discussed here. And so um, what we wanted to do in this next section is pull out really just a handful of those that have a, we think some of the uh, more of an outsized impact on shaping how the overall street corridor comes together, how the right of way is designed, how that range of different users gets accommodated. There's some critical ones that relate to, you know, putting together, you know, we, sometimes people use the word corridor assembly. So how are you stitching together that cross section of the road? What are those major pieces that are going to be taking up right of way space um, that we want to talk through? So we're going to walk through that right now. And again, if we're, we have questions as we're going through this, please drop them in chat or, or raise your hand. Happy to spend time talking through this. Um, so one of the first ones is relates back to pedestrian areas and sidewalks. So the design element um, identifies, you know, the sidewalk is really that clear um, walking path that you have between, you know, as where your sidewalk typically is. That's often set, you know, right at the edge of the right-of-way line. Um, and then what we refer to as the pedestrian area includes the sidewalk, but it's everything else from that right-of-way line over to the curb, the curb line, the edge of the roadway itself. So that includes the sidewalk. That also includes um, the amenity zone. Sometimes that can be called, you know, a landscape strip or a lawn panel. There's a variety of different names for it. But that amenity zone where you often uh, might have street trees, this could be lawn, it could be paved, it, that entirely depends on the context that you're in. Um, it is also important to think about what we call the frontage zone, which particularly in more dense urban air environments, you may have the building frontages are set back a little bit from the property zone or from the property line or the right-of-way line. Um, but often that setback space is still perceived by people to be part of the sidewalk realm. So that's an important piece to kind of um, keep in mind. It doesn't apply everywhere, um, but it's it can be an element. And so um, what the design manual establishes is both um, kind of minimum widths for the sidewalk. That really depends on the context. So a lot of the uh, neighborhood streets would be a five foot wide minimum. Um, the other, other downtown or commercial streets would be a six foot wide minimum. And then your really high pedestrian, high activity corridors would be an eight foot minimum. 
And then there are also targets established for these different widths too. So just saying, you know, the minimum is great when you can get more width and more space in there. And, you know, as you go through and look at the volumes of pedestrian traffic, if it makes sense to widen that, um, here's what some of the targets are. Um, it also identifies similarly for the amenity zone, some minimum widths. And these are really important from a pedestrian comfort standpoint too. Um, you know, roads that end up positioning a sidewalk, you know, right at the edge of the curb or within just a couple of feet from the edge of a roadway, Particularly, particularly if there's no um, parking or other curbside use happening there, you know, walking down a sidewalk with cars going really fast right next to you isn't the most comfortable experience. And so, you know, having the amenity zone have enough width in there that you can get, um, be able to put in street light poles or street trees or things like that and have it offset enough from the roadway. Um, that you can actually accommodate those and fit those in is a good thing, um, just from a pedestrian comfort and safety standpoint. Um, and then it also helps identify just some overall um, target widths for that um, combined sidewalk and amenity zone area. And um, that also relates to both um, if you have parking or you know a curbside lane use on the street or not. So Generally, if you don't have uh, on-street parking next to where the sidewalk is or the pedestrian area is, you want that to be a little bit wider to have just more uh, comfort and separation for people. Um, and then, you know, if you do have on-street parking, that parking can help function as a buffer a little bit and help, um, you don't need quite as much room. So that was the pedestrian one. Um, another critical one too, um, that is kind of at the intersection, no pun intended, between uh, the pedestrian space and the vehicle space is thinking about corner geometry and in particular the design vehicle that's being used on a particular roadway. Um, as you know, many of you may know, or if you don't, the, um, there's a difference between what the actual physical curb radius is that's drawn on a roadway versus the effective curb radius, which is where the uh, inside uh, path of the vehicle is actually tracking. And, and oftentimes when you have things like, you know, on-street parking um, or bike lanes or things that are pulling, um, pushing out where the vehicle is actually turning, you know, your effective radius may be a lot bigger than what your actual radius is. Um, and the effective radius is really what we should be designing towards um, relative to uh, the design vehicle. So looking at um, different road types and thinking about you know, what that key target design vehicle is and making sure that it's the effective radius that's needed for that design vehicle can be accommodated. And if so, you have a lot more flexibility to tighten up the radiuses, the actual physical radiuses that are out there to make you know, straighter crosswalk crossings, um, to make all of that easier um, oftentimes, you know, if you were to look at installing a bump out, for instance, on this corner, um, you can bump out all of this space that's in between that actual and effective curb radius um, in order to create more, more space for pedestrians at corners and things like that. Um, the other note on design vehicle two, 
Um, while there is a target design vehicle, it's important to think about like what does happen when some of these other vehicles come through here. If there needs to be a larger vehicle on occasion that comes through, you know, or is it on a transit route or on a truck route where there's an expectation that you're going to have larger vehicles having to make turns more frequently, um, that may push you into choosing a different uh, kind of curb radius um, based on those, those requirements and what other vehicles might be anticipated. I might add, Oliver, that, yeah, you know, please. in determining traffic and how much or how many of a certain type vehicle might be on a street or making a turning movement is is the key question to ask. And I, I think we've realized that you ultimately could have a, a really large vehicle come down a street during its lifetime, or maybe once a year or twice a year, you don't end up designing for that particular situation. You design for what you expect will be the, the regular traffic along that street in terms of trucks and types of, of trucks. And, and that's what's important. It's nice to be conservative and saying, well, I, I'll designed for this extra large truck that comes through a couple times a year. And I don't have to worry about my curb getting crushed or my sidewalk getting broken or my ped signal being knocked over. And that's nice, but the fact is, would it, would it, what's the likelihood of that really happening or how much of that traffic would it take to actually end up breaking something or knocking something over it, it's it's a game of probability but uh, i think i would caution you not to be ultra conservative just so we're consistent across the area or along a street about how we predict traffic and the kind of traffic we're we're predicting is more important especially if we have to go to court it's the consistency that counts when you're testifying in court, or I have to testify in court to protect the city, uh, not so much that that real odd outlier. So it's not an easy question to answer. All I'm suggesting is, is just don't default to the biggest truck you can think of or you've seen coming down the street. And consider this, that as we move traffic around over the next decade, as we go to the two-way, as, as things really change, where trucks and, and cars and the kind of trucks and cars that are using different streets is going to be changing. So we do have to study that before we go hand. Don't consider just because what you're seeing today is going to be what we designed for because it is going to change. Thanks, Oliver. Yeah, no, thanks, Dennis. Yeah, I should mention Dennis is probably gonna lean in on a bunch of these. So feel free to jump in, cut me off whenever. Um, another kind of key layout uh, design element relates to travel lane width. And so this design manual establishes citywide as a standard that the that a 10 foot wide travel lane is used. Um, and there are, this design element does note where there are some exceptions to that. So 11 foot lanes may be granted for um, roads where you have, you know, a high preponderance of heavy truck traffic or, you know, along uh, high frequency transit corridors. 
um, where there's other you know, tight constraints that would uh, not give those vehicles that flexibility to work within a 10 foot lane and a little additional space is needed. Um, and then just a note about where those are measured from. Um, and then, you know, and for instance, too, like when there's curb and gutter present, you know, you're not measuring to the face of the curb, you're uh, measuring to the edge of metal or where the edge of the gutter line is next to the transit lane, those kinds of things. Um, so again, to Dennis's point about consistency, um, you know, where things are measured from, what the standard lane widths are, this section provides um, a basis for consistency on that. Um, and then, you know, getting to the questions around um, safety for all users, not just um, safety, I mean, and, and that includes, you know, looking at it from a vulnerable user perspective, but oftentimes people forget that, you know, when we're talking about safety on the roadway, it's also reducing vehicle speeds so that vehicle on vehicle <laughs> crashes are lessened. So it's important that when we talk about volume or speed management, you know, that's often framed as sort of taking away from vehicles to give it to, you know, vulnerable users. Um, but it's really about improving the safety outcomes for everyone that's using the roadway. And I think that's an important distinction to, to think through and to keep in mind. So just recognizing that slower streets are safe, you know, are slower for everyone or safer for everyone, excuse me. That speed is really the number one factor that affects crash severity and risk of injury across all types. Um, and you know, it's not just a matter of going out and saying, all right, well, we're going to just start changing the posted speed limits to put a lower limit in. That's not really an effective way of getting at changing speeds. You really have to change over time uh, the physical conditions of the roadway to give drivers and everyone else the cues of how fast or slow that they should be going without needing to have a sign to reinforce that. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of emphasis in the past of looking at volume and speed management on minor streets. So a lot of the kinds of treatments that you see on the screen here, I think something that um, cities really across the country are grappling with now is how do we start to apply volume and speed management in a genuine way to our major streets? What does that look like? How do these techniques adapt and work on major streets? Um, I'm sure you, you may have heard that some big cities, I think Minneapolis was maybe one where they just went to a 25 mile an hour speed limit across the city. Well, how do you actually change the roadway to get people to drive at that speed as opposed to just trying to rely on a sign? Um, so this is something the design manual lays out, you know, techniques and methods for a lot of those different volume and speed management controls, but a lot of other elements feed into that too. So having narrower lane widths, having tighter turning radiuses, slow vehicles down when they're making turns, all of those kinds of things play into this as well. I, I think the third point on the slide is especially a important one to I want to draw your attention to. If there was a time when, when we designed roads and if we had to have a curve, we would put a sign on it to let people know it was there instead of trying to figure out a better way to, first of all, control the speeds as people approach that curve or to not have the curve at all or to design the curve differently. So I, I think if, if you need to put a sign somewhere, the first thing you need to look at is, 
is there a bigger problem with the overall design of this facility and what can I do to change it? But then if you have to put the signs out there and, and I, and, and that, that happens and it's necessary, you need to make sure that the signs align with what the street is and what you're trying to have people understand. It's better, you see the, the copy of the, or the traffic circle in the lower right-hand corner, and you don't see a lot of signs there, do you? Because it's probably fairly clear to people what they have to do when they get there. And that's what you really want. I've seen traffic circles with dozens of signs on them. And I've seen traffic circles with one or two signs on them. Uh, to tell you the truth, the ones with the one or two signs worked as well as the ones with dozens of signs. And part of it might be that people weren't overloaded trying to figure out what all those darn signs meant. So number three is a real good point. If you can't, that's a takeaway for you. Great, thanks, Dennis. Um, the design manual lays out a lot of different intersection strategies and signalization related strategies too. Um, and Dennis had mentioned this earlier during the upfront section, but um, it, you know the conventional approach and wisdom towards things like level of service for vehicles. Um, you know, this design manual gives you the power to say, oh, okay, you know, a level of service D or even an E in many situations um, can be acceptable because it's a trade-off that we're making to prioritize other users, uh, whether they be vulnerable users or just a higher percentage of a different mode of traffic on a particular roadway. Um, and so the signalization strategies tie into that um, and you can implement those uh, strategies to help slow the road down and improve safety. Um, and be able to make that trade off with reducing the level of service for vehicles in order to accomplish that. So things like no turn on reds and, and different high pedestrian areas or intersections with protected bicycle infrastructure, um, signal timing and you know, leading pedestrian intervals where those make sense to be installed. Um, there's a lot of other things that can be done on the pedestrian signal countdown timers, you know, APS um, push buttons for accessible pedestrian signals things like that. Um, and then also going to just the phasing schemes themselves. So leading versus lagging left turns in the phasing in the signal phasing and um, you know, moving more towards uh, a lagging left that lets pedestrians make the crossings first without having to worry about uh, left turning vehicles cutting across them, for instance, is, is something that um, a lot of communities are moving towards as well. I, I joked Oliver the other day when we were talking about this slide and how I didn't like leading left turns. And, and he makes a good point. Pedestrians is probably the first consideration why you wouldn't want that. But the other one goes back to that previous uh, slide to a certain extent. If I have 95% of the traffic going straight through an intersection and 5% turning, why would I give preference to the people turning left? as opposed to the majority of the folks using that street that need to move along and we need to clear away. So that's a question to ask yourself. I'm not giving you the answer, but it, that's the kind of question I think leads us to the best design for a location. Um, another big one is on bicycle facility selection. And so, um, 
the start of the bicycle design element chapter starts off with this bicycle facility selection design element, which is required on every single street type. And really what this design element does is it walks through or provides a chart, which I'll show in a second, that really asks the project team to answer some questions around you know, bicycle accommodations on that street to determine whether or not it should be a low stress or a high stress bicycle facility street. And based on that, um, what kinds of facilities um, might be uh, called for in order to create a safe and accessible connection for people. Um, this chart, there's a lot going on, it's kind of busy. Um, I think this is a good one informationally to be aware of though. And so what it's, um, what it's really saying is that, and this is based on a, a survey that was done across uh, a number of municipalities in the country of all different sizes, and they pooled that survey information together. Um, but essentially what it found is that about, on average, about 63% of the population was willing to bike um, and interested in biking to some degree, either for commuting or recreationally or anywhere in between. We had about a third of the people that just said, no way, no how, I'm not, not really interested in it. Um, but when you start to break down that 63%, so these percentages that are in the color boxes are all add up to 100, um, just so that they're all within the 63%. You know, what they found is that about 10% of the people were pretty strong and fearless and basically willing to bike ride around on anything. So these are a lot of people that may be doing, you know, uh, road bike riding uh, for recreational riding, this is your spandex crew out there zipping around. Um, and then you, they had about 8% of the respondents were in this enthused and confident category, which basically said, you know, they're comfortable biking on, so non-residential streets. So, you know, streets that aren't, you know, small local roads are gonna be a street usually with a double yellow or a center line down it. Um, so long as there's at least conventional bike lanes on that road. And so what you can see of, of your biking population, you know, that's only about 20% of the people that you're actually hitting that are gonna be willing to either ride in the road or ride using conventional bike lanes. So you're leaving out a huge chunk of the population that might that's interested in bicycling, but just doesn't feel confident and comfortable in being able to get around safely. Um, so this is really what's starting to push, you know, you hear about kind of the Dutch standard of, you know, how things are being designed uh, in many European cities for more safety and comfort. And so that move towards more separated bicycle lanes and separated facilities or putting things onto much slower roads um, and designating them as bike boulevards and putting all the treatments in place to make that comfortable for people. That's really what this LTS or levelless traffic stress two category is. And so as a starting point for thinking about a low stress bike route, um, if you're able to design to, you know, that LTS2 category that you're hitting about 70% of the bike riding or willing bike riding population is going to be comfortable or is likely to be comfortable on that kind of facility. So you're going from 20% up to 70% right there, which is a pretty big jump. So um, wanted to kind of talk through that and lay that out. Um, because that ultimately feeds into decisions around um, bicycle facility selection and just being aware that, you know, putting a bike lane, a conventional bike lane down, you know, on a road that's, you know, 35 mile an hour traffic without a lot of stops, there's not a lot of people that are going to be comfortable using that facility and that may be reflected in your usership.
And so um, what the design manual does is it identifies um, each of the different street types and uh, what are potential low stress facilities that make sense within that street typology given traffic volume, speed, all of those kinds of things and what might be a standard facility. Um, Kalamazoo does have a non-motorized uh, plan. And so um, looking at those proposed routes relative to this question, I think that um, is important and is an important set of questions to ask as a project team. Um, a route may be proposed on the non-motorized plan. Should that be part of a, of a low stress network or not? Uh, will be an important question to talk through. And again, the design manual itself provides detailed guidance on all of those different uh, elements. So whether it's a side path, two-way or one-way, uh, separated bicycle facilities, advisory bike lanes, there's a range of different uh, methods described in the manual. I think I just have two more here. Um, another one, there's a range of design elements that are looking at kind of curbside strategies. So I've listed those off here. Um, so one of them relates to curbside occupancy, um, which is things like plat uh, platform dining or parklets where curbside space can be um, repurposed and, and, and used as an extension of the sidewalk environment. But then guidance around commercial loading zones, metered parking areas, drop-off zones. And then um, something that the city is really look, starting to look at more is around uh, neighborhood parking. And so what are the times of day is it 24 hour allowed parking? Uh, what neighborhoods is that being tested in? Um, really, you know, looking at other communities too. Um, the great thing about having neighborhood parking is that when you have cars all up and down the side of the street, it narrows the rest of that roadway down for users and can actually help make your residential streets slower um, and keep traffic uh, better, better regulated as you're going through those neighborhood streets. So. Um, there's some guidance around uh, applicability and management of that. And then last, there are a number of design elements related specifically to transit, um, transit operations. This was one just to pull off and highlight um, that we're starting to see communities in, in Michigan use a lot more. And this is an idea of, of a bus bulb. So it used to be that with transit vehicles, you'd create a cut in on the road so the transit vehicle could get out of the travel lane and um, when you talk to transit operators, they're like, yeah, you know, that works. We're not backing up traffic, but then we have to deal with trying to merge back into traffic. And during rush hour, that can be a big impact um, on their headway. So moving towards approaches where um, you recognize that if this is a transit corridor, transit vehicles are going to stop and people are going to have to wait behind them. And so pulling, creating essentially a bump out. Uh, where the transit stop is so that transit vehicles can stop um, in the travel lane and do all their boarding and lighting. And then this example also shows how you can accommodate uh, bicycle connections through that boarding bulb too, to still um, allow for bicycle travel uh, around the bus at these locations. Okay, I'll pause there. I know this was a lot to walk through tried to give you an overview of the process and hit on some of the key design elements. Any questions jumping out to the group right now? Happy to take those. I guess I have a question on the governance 
Um, and this, this was all really impressive. I think the document, it's a lot of information and it's, you've done a really good job of distilling it and making it pretty clear and easy to understand. So uh, kudos to everyone on that. But how is this document approved? How is it amended? And then if, whether it's a neighborhood or a adjacent property owner or a private developer, if someone's concerned about a standard, how do they appeal that decision if they want to, or can they? Hi, this is Christina. I, I'll, Greg, I'll try to answer your question. Um, and that question is from Greg, who is the chair of our plan commission. Um, so uh, the document, I mean, this was created as a technical manual. Um, and we have a lot of standards in the city that are, you know, technical standards that we follow that don't necessarily go through a public review process in the same way that a neighborhood plan would. Um, what we're going to be doing with this document, um, are, there are a couple things. So one, uh, we will be updating through a public process, our zoning code, uh, and updating the street, um, the street type manual or the street, the street type map that's in the zoning code uh, and tying it with this one, right? Because this is a little more refined than what we have in the master plan. What's in the zoning code now reflects what's in the master plan. So through a public process, we'll have that review and discussion. And if we need to make changes through that review and discussion, then we'll, we'll deal with it at that time. Secondly, uh, you know, internally, obviously we'll be using it through our process, right? So that I think that part is pretty clear when we do construction projects and how we do that and how we use it and apply it to our streets when we, the city are leading um, the work. In, when it relates to, um, uh, you know, uh, a developer, uh, this will be part of our um, site plan review process. So when you go to the site plan review page on the city's website, there are all those documents that you review, you know, what does your water line need to be, you know, what are the stormwater requirements, this will be part of that. And so this will guide what happens when, um, uh, you know, the right of way is interrupted by a project. Now that's typically not the whole street, usually that's more of um, the pedestrian realm. Uh, and the, um, you know, maybe, you know, the curb uses or on-street parking. Um, so it, it's mostly that versus the whole street. And so that's, that, that is how, that is how the document will be spread and used. I guess the one public piece would be, you know, that we debate, we'd be discussing and, uh, um, you know, that could potentially be impacted would be what goes into the zoning code itself and how zoning standards like use and height or intensity of use um, would be tied to the typology manual, which is just one piece, right, of the larger document. Um, I hope that answers your question. I guess I'll add one last bit. You know, when we do neighborhood plans, we have seven done. Uh, when we do more neighborhood plans, you know, this would certainly be a guiding document that we would pull out and just, you know, talk through with the neighborhoods as they're thinking about um, what streets uh, are, um, how the streets function in their neighborhood, their neighborhood network, um, particularly related to um, traffic calming, uh, pedestrian facilities, and bike facilities. 
Christina, if I could jump in too, I think one of the things that we talked a lot about too is um, the uh, streets co co complete streets committee also being using the document. Yes, thank you, Janet. So um, that that is also a good point. So in the process part um, and related to the um, the you know projects that make it into our capital improvements plan and what elements they include, um, we have with our complete streets policy. There are two committees. One is an internal committee that will will be will be reviewing um, uh, street projects. Uh, in advance of them going in the plan. But the other part is using our Complete Streets Advisory Committee or CSAC. Um, and we have at least one CSAC member here today. Um, they will be participating um, using this document uh, to help us think through streets um, in, that, in that phase before they actually get into the CIP, the Capital Improvements Plan, which is pretty, you know, it starts to get more specific, right? You know, we're starting to outline budgets uh, and marching towards you know, design and construction. In the queue that we kind of are creating prior to that, um, the Complete Streets um, Advisory Committee will be using this document to help us think through those streets um, as another check uh, for what needs to be included. Are we thinking about this now? What else do we need to know? So uh, CSAC is made up of um, uh, community uh, residents, those that live, work, and play, uh, not just residents, but, uh, you know, those who work in town, um, who have, uh, you know, um, either an interest or a stake in transportation. Uh, and um, yeah, so that that's another good point, another way that um, the document will be used. Oliver, I have a quick question too. Uh, yes, I'm go for Kurt. it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. I'm Kurt Artema. I work for a private developer, but I also serve on the uh, CATS board and the uh, Central County Transportation Authority. And my question is related to the street parking. So I heard the, the a little bit of dialogue on street parking. To me, it's one of the, the easiest ways to solve a lot of issues uh, related to speed and uh, reduces the need to have a bunch of surface parking lots in our urbanized area. So I'm wondering, we have a local ordinance right now that prohibits overnight street parking unless it's exempted. So I'm wondering how this manual interacts with that local law. And maybe Christina maybe has an update on that, but just curious on how this interacts with that. Yeah, that's that's great. And I, I can turn it over to Christina here in a sec. I think what the design manual sets up is sort of laying out particularly for that neighborhood level parking sort of where the value and the benefit is in allowing that um, and it does talk about the overnight parking um, and um, you know finding locations and having a process for uh, implementing those exceptions and and kind of it's trying to set the direct the design manual is trying to set the direction that this is a good thing to be exploring and to look at alternative ways of doing it. And that may mean pushing back on that ordinance. And Christina, I know you all are looking at some pieces related to that too. Sure, um, this is Christina Anderson again, and I'll start and maybe Dennis will wanna chime in as actually the implementer um, to kind of share the role. So um, we have started in the last couple of years to look at our on-street parking um, a little bit differently. Um, and have started to, you know, hear from residents the, the desire for greater access to that space. 
right, for both day and night parking. Um, this was, um, you know, uh, one example of that is in the Vine neighborhood plan, uh, exploring how on-street parking can be handled um, was one of the tasks in the plan. Um, and it's something that, you know, we had a small task force, talked about, um, did some studies on, and are in the process right now of changing over signs in that neighborhood to expand um, the opportunities for parking, again, both day and night. Uh, we know that this, you know, the next neighborhood will likely be downtown. There's a lot of interest there, uh, but the city is open to, you know, looking and exploring and hearing from residents and setting our street, you know, the space that we have, uh, because you're right, Kurt, you know, not only does it, does that space serve as an, you know, an asset, a place to put the car, um, but when those cars are parked in uh, between, you know, curb to curb, they also provide kind of a natural traffic calming um, function there. And so it's, uh, you know, a quick and easy way to um, hit two, you know, check two boxes. Yeah, I, I think I've been looking at a couple things regarding parking. And again, we were, as we go through the Vine neighborhood, we've been looking at providing more parking where we could, that, that's been one one thing and, and kind of eliminating all the different kinds of signs and standardizing parking. I, it really, parking does help slow traffic down. I, I've seen it in other communities where I've worked. Uh, and I, I just finished some traffic calming analysis yesterday. And I even just painting a line down a, a road on both sides will give me a mile and a half reduction in, in the average speed an hour. So, I, there's there's a lot of benefit the the downside and, and we have to figure out how we want to deal with this is that on many streets where we get complaints regarding speeding cars and 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 you need to calm it as i look at the crash data and and i'm using 10 years of crash data so it's a good history i find that on many streets the biggest problem is of uh, cars parked cars being hit not only by cars going down the street, but cars backing out of driveways into their neighbors' cars. And it's really interesting when I find that's such a problem. And how do we deal that, especially if, as we encourage or allow people to park even more and more. So there, it's not necessarily a downside, but it, it, is, it is something that we're gonna have to deal with because uh, often people have their, their property damaged and, uh, the police can't ever find who did the damage. And so that, that that's one of those little irritating kind of neighborhood problems that you have. But again, we can we can work through that, talk about it. But I'm interested again, just on another point. Uh, snow is always a problem. One one thing we have to worry about is clearing streets. If we're going to allow people to park overnight consistently around the city. We also have to implement some type of snow emergency uh, process so that when we do have to clear six or 12 or 20 inches of snow off a road, we can get our trucks down that and people know that they should at least try to find another place for their cars. But for, for this area, that's important. We get big dumps of snow and we, we have to roll that in. So there's, there's a, a number of other items we're talking about, but I'll, I'll say in general, we're looking for ways to put more people along the streets 
Uh, we just have to figure out how to do it the right way. Well, and, and I'd say just I appreciate the feedback and I'd say look at the examples around us. It's certainly we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Everybody, yep. every other major urban area in the Midwest is doing it. So yep. I think there's, there's answers out there. Um, Susan, I think she's had her hand up for some time. Do you want to ask your question? Um, real quickly, uh, Kalamazoo College is a very hilly campus, and one of the things we're struggling with is a lot of slips and falls, um, particularly on inclines. And I know generally when the incline of the sidewalk matches the incline of the street, you would assume you wouldn't have a handrail. But is does any of this preclude putting handrails in places where we're seeing a lot of slips and falls because of the incline. Yeah, the manual doesn't speak directly to that handrail question, but I think um, given that's its omission, I don't think I, I don't think there would be anything that would be a conflict with it. Um, the main thing to bear in mind would be that uh, it's critical that the clear zone of the sidewalk and whatever width that gets established based on um, the street type that you're on, that that be clear and doesn't have any obstructions in it. So, you know, if a handrail were to be installed, for instance, you know, having it right at the edge of the, the outside edge of the sidewalk along the right-of-way line or something like that would make, would make, could make sense and could work. But, so, sorry, I don't have more, more detail than that, but. Okay. Any other Any... questions? Yeah, sorry. Oh, oh, Scott? Yeah, Scott. Hello there. Hi. Hello. Hi. So uh, I was listening, and um, the only thing I wanted to point out is that uh, looking at some of the lanes and those kind of things, I'd just like to put in perspective the fact that our apparatus are 10 feet edge to edge. So if we're talking about a 10 foot wide roadway, that's going to be virtually impossible. Um, and then as you add snow into that, or you add someone that can't park or something like that, I just, just wanna make sure that we keep that in mind. Um, I know every time that we have a project that comes through and I throw something out, reference a fire access lane, or we talk about um, access in general. Um, I know that Bobby and I've had this discussion and I've had this discussion with other people is the, the the apparatus, which like Dennis said, we're not talking about a once a year kind of thing or a big truck coming down a road or something like that. We may not have a fire on that road every week or something like that, but with a bunch of businesses or a bunch of occupancies on one road, that truck may drive down that street once or twice a week. It may not go to one specific location, but it may be out on that street repetitively going somewhere else. Um, or that may be a connecting street for some other reason. So I just, I know that fire access has always been kind of a, um, a question in the past for different site plans and those kind of things. Um, looking at turning radius for our apparatus and those kind of things, just keeping in mind that our apparatus are 10 foot, they're 119 inches. So 10 foot edge to edge. And if we're looking at um, like specific turning radiuses and stuff like that, if we are going forward with trying to make smaller turning areas, or if we're trying to look at doing different 
traffic calming kind of things. Maybe this is something that as public safety going forward, if we're going to get into some sort of different redesign of something, maybe we need to look at different apparatus because um, we are in the process uh, next, well, next week, actually, we'll be going out to do a spec for our new ladder truck. Um, our ladder truck we have right now is 25 years old. So we're in the process of replacing it, but you're talking about $1.4 million to replace a fire truck. And even a regular fire engine is you're pushing about 750,000 right now. So if we're looking down the road, we're looking at fire trucks that are 20 plus years old, trying to get them down smaller and smaller roads or traffic calmed roads or something like that. I just want to put that out there of for doing a $1.4 million investment into a piece of apparatus. We want to just make sure that we can still get it to the places that we need to go and not just want to get it to the places we need to go but thinking in the future this could be here for 20 years um is this something where in the future our next piece of apparatus we need to look at a different model we need to look at a different design um or or what i'm not just throwing it out there yeah if i i i'm sure others want to jump in here too but i i'd like to say a couple of things so i know we talk about this 10 foot lane width and and we are that's, that is what we're talking about, but there's some subtlety there. So whenever it is uh, essentially up against a curve, your effective lane width really is 11 feet because it's not from the curve, it's from the edge of the, the gutter pan, if you will. So, you know, usually when you're up against a curve, your effective lane width is 11. Um, so that 10 feet is, is really when you've got some additional asphalt, right? When you've either got additional lanes or you've got a, a bike lanes or you've got, you know, parking or something else, um, uh, trying to keep the, the amount of asphalt, you know. And then if it, you know, obviously there's not too many cases where you truly have a one lane road, but if you did, the chances of making that one lane road just that 10 feet probably, you know, I don't want to, speak in a way that I know every possible uh, scenario, but usually at th those points, if it's truly a one lane road, it's going to be something more than just that feet uh, with the understanding that that's, that's all you have. So um, the, the, the 10 feet is really there because most of our roads are multi-lane, right? And so, um, you know, when we've got an emergency vehicle uh, if people do what they are supposed to do, you know, move to the side, move over, the, the, the vehicle should have um, plenty of room to, to get through. Um, the, and then I think the other thing with the turns is, you know, we did talk about that sort of effective radius. Um, and also, again, I think with the emergency vehicle, there is that expectation that if necessary, you know, they can do that wide turn. Um, and that again, people are going to be able to move out of their way or get out of their way to, to do that if they need to, if it's truly a tight street, which I'm sure is something that occurs already, right? There are just streets out there today that they're just, they're two local narrow streets. And if you're bringing a really piece of big equipment, right, you're gonna do a wide turn. You're gonna turn into that oncoming lane, um, you know, and then and then come back to the, to the through lane. So those, I just wanna put those two general things um, out there. Um, the fire, you know, access of fire equipment and emergency equipment is really important to good street design. Um, and you, you can say things, I think, around lane width, 
and still acknowledge like, you know, outriggers, for instance, on some fire equipment, right? They need often 20 feet. Well, you could have that, you know, two 10 foot lanes get you that 20 feet, right? Yes, it is the oncoming lane, but the assumption is when the fire truck's there, that's gonna be cleared and, and you're gonna have that full access. So there are ways I think that we think about these things when we're designing complete streets, they are really important um, while still trying to achieve some of the object objectives that we talked today. So hopefully that gives you a certain comfort level. And I don't know if, if others wanna add to that. I just, I, I think that those are good points, Scott. And I just wanted to mention, like Janet did, when we look at a lane width, I'm gonna look at the whole cross section of the street. And basically we're gonna allocate different formal lanes for different uses. But uh, for example, whenever I paint a bike lane now, while I take it away from the normal driving through lane, that, that five feet is still available for other uses and multiple uses is, is kind of one of the things we've been experimenting with. Uh, so uh, again, that's a real good point. That's the, the kind of question and analysis I think is design teams should spend their time on uh, and that we didn't always do that in the past. You know, we just defaulted to, to some answers. So uh, again, this fits really in line with, with this whole manual and the approach that we're promoting. I appreciate it, Dennis, and Janet, I appreciate it as well. Um, I guess that was just kind of my biggest thing is I just wanna make sure um, that we're all on the same page here. And obviously, Dennis, you and I work together a lot. And so I, uh, I appreciate not only the, uh, the, the questions and the answers, but being able to uh, kind of collaborate with one another and be like, hey, this is the reason why I am looking for this. And this is the reason why you're looking for this. And just, I guess that's the biggest thing is just the collaboration, making sure that we're both on the, uh, the same, same path so that we, uh, we come up with the best product at the end. 